Greyhound to trap one. Over. Welcome to the Trap One Podcast. I'm Mark. Today I'm joined by Simon. Welcome back, Simon. Hello. And a very Hi. special guest, Doctor Who magazine comic legend, Scott Gray. Thank you very much for joining us, Scott. Hi, guys. Uh, great to be here. Thank you very much. So we're going to talk about, obviously, your um, Who magazine comic work today. Um, but first of all, just uh, where did it all start for you? Can you remember the first Doctor Who story you ever saw? First, oh yeah, yeah. You mean on TV? The yeah, first yeah. Doctor story I I can remember seeing just 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 snippets of images. It's actually the Tenth Planet. Wow. Yeah, <laughs> everyone's like, wow, because <laughs> it's a really good one. <laughs> really, the only thing I can remember from the Tenth Planet is actually the cliffhanger in episode one when the Cybermen show up and they club that guy in the middle of the blizzard next to the Dardis. And that's it. And I can remember, clearly remember that moment, the close-up of the gun coming out and him firing and then them just ignoring the bullets and knocking him down and just thinking, he just shot them and, and they didn't fall over. What's going on? You know, it was, I think I was about four at the time. It was shown, you know, shown a few years later in New Zealand. And uh, so, yeah, that's my earliest memory of Doctor Who. And, yeah, I've been a fan. I've been a fan, well, since... You say well, you say you're a fan, but, but but you know you're watching the Patrick Trout stories when I'm like five or six, and I'm terrified. I'm absolutely terrified, but I am watching it. I'm definitely watching it. I so I guess I guess I've become a proper fan, you know, at about maybe 1975 when uh, when that's when John Pertwee arrived. We were literally a doctor behind Britain at that time. You see. So was, while Tom Baker's arriving with you guys, it's John Pertwee uh, in New Zealand. And I distinctly remember watching Spearhead from Space because it's the first one I can remember watching on the sofa rather than behind it. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, yeah, so the Spearhead from Space and the Silurians, they were huge. They were big, big news in my, in my local school and everyone was watching the show by then. They just, we just loved it and not. Yeah, I've been a follower ever since. And then you cut your teeth working on publications for the New Zealand Doctor Who fan club? Yeah, yeah. Really, I'd, I'd kind of... It's, it's difficult. The Doctor Who on TV in New Zealand is this really strange thing that, that's kind of... It's there and then it's not there. And it's kind of like a feast or a famine, really, in the 80s. It disappeared around the time of Peter Davison's maybe its last year. I can't honestly remember now. And it went away for several years. There was nothing on TV. And then when they did bring it back, they decided to start with the earliest one that they could get at the time, which was a couple of Patch of Troughton stories. And then from then on, they showed two episodes a week, pretty much nonstop. It just never went on. So they would they showed two Troughtons, which were The Mind Robber and The Crotons, I'm pretty sure. And then it was Spearhead from Space onwards. Um, and, and it just never stopped. So that, at that point, sort of in the in the 80s, you know, maybe 1983, something like that, 1982, I kind of got into fandom at that point when when suddenly there was just this deluge of Doctor Who on TV in New Zealand. So, yeah, I, 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 yeah, I started communicating with uh, Paul Schoons, who was doing the Time Space Visualizer. Um, 
really nice guy and uh, you know he was doing the, that, that fanzine and so I just started doing bits of artwork for it and I ended up doing a couple of comic strips for it which I just did the whole thing I wrote and drew it and lettered it and pretty crude but just a couple of Sylvester McCoy stories because we'd reached Sylvester by the time I started doing that and I just loved Sylvester's stuff I just thought that that was a fantastic period of the show and uh and I, I just, when that kind of stopped I remember thinking no 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 I'm not finished with this yet I want more and if that means I just make more of my own then and so be it I will just make more Sylvester McCoy stories so uh yeah so I did a couple of those and um and I just thought, well, look, I've finished them. It's nothing to lose by sending them off to Doctor Who magazine in Britain. So I sent them to John Freeman, and he kind of responded quite favourably to them. He wasn't really grabbed by the artwork, but he liked the stories. He thought the stories were actually quite good. So he offered me a chance to uh, to uh, to just write a an on spec script, really. Um, so I did that, and, and that got accepted. So that was that was just extraordinary because I was still living in New Zealand at the time. It didn't seem quite possible somehow to to just you know <laughs> to to actually get a job in, in British comics still living in New Zealand by just and we were just you know posting things. This was this was the, this was the last century we're talking about. Yeah. There was no internet. We were literally posting things back and forth to each other. But John was really encouraging and, and, and just brilliant. So Doctor okay. Who magazine was making it to New Zealand as well. Was that as far behind as, as a TV show? Or were you getting kind of up to date? No, that's the interesting thing. We were getting Doctor Who magazine in New Zealand when the show wasn't on, or at least when the show was way, way lagging behind the the uh, the uh, the show. Um, so yeah, we'd get. We'd, I remember distinctly getting you know buying it and and there'd be an article about a Sylvester McCoy story and I would have to just like quickly flip it over because yeah. I didn't want it spoiled. They'd be talking about something that happened a year ago and it was still not something we'd seen on TV. So there was always that, oh, no, spoilers, spoilers, yeah. quick, quick, through the pages. I'll, I'll read that a year and a half from now. <laughs> I want to see this stuff. And I always remember, issue, I think it's issue 98 that came, I think it's issue 98, something like that, and there's a little picture of Colin Baker and Fraser Hines on the cover. And I remember looking at that and thinking, oh, wow, they're going to bring back Jamie in a story. What a brilliant idea. The Doctor's obviously going to meet Jamie. And I had no idea that it was an actual multi-Doctor story. It was just, oh, look, there's Jamie. So there was a lot of that kind of weird Doctor Who was just this properly timey-wimey thing in, in New Zealand. All, all of the stuff was happening at the same time. And we were getting John Pertwee followed by Tom Baker, followed by Peter Davison, followed by Colin Baker. And it was all coming coming very methodically and and you know and very regularly um and yeah yeah the, the magazine was in a totally different time zone to that but i did enjoy the mag i and again i think i can't remember when i started buying it i think yeah i i couldn't tell you the issue number or something but it was definitely a period i think around sylvester in the, in the, in the mid-80s or whatever when I was properly into it and thinking, this is great. And I think there was one shop in, in my hometown that sold it. So it was it became a real, you got to stake out, you got to know when it was arriving and you got to kind of stake it out, <laughs> show up a day earlier. Is it out yet? No, okay, I'll be back tomorrow. 
Because <laughs> you never knew, you never knew if you were gonna be, if there was going to be three or four other Doctor Who fans picking out. I'm not quite sure why I didn't just place an order for it. That would have obviously been the sensible thing, but I never did that for some reason. I was always like, "Oh, is it out yet? Is it out yet?" So yeah, weird. But yeah, I think I think to be honest, looking back, I think I probably saw Sylvester um, in the comics before I saw him on TV. If that makes sense. I think mm. that must have happened. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, so yeah, sorry, I'm blathering on. <laughs> no, not at all. What were the what were the sort of early comics that, that influenced you? Were there any Doctor Who or other ones? Oh yeah, um, a lot of the a lot of the uh, British weeklies. I was I was really interested in, um, and in particular, action. That was the one. I just I just actually sent uh, Pat uh, Pat Mills who did the. Uh, who basically created all of this stuff, created action, he created 2000 AD and the like. And I just, I just uh, sent him a message today saying, thank you so much for making my, making my childhood just so gory. Because <laughs> action was, I don't know if you guys have ever seen it. Have you guys ever read action? Don't think so, it was no. the 17 yeah. weekly British comic, which was just really violent. It was the most violent British comic ever done. And everything was based on a movie. So there was, there was a Jaws thing called a hot jaw, which was just a giant great white shark with a with a spike coming out of its chin, basically. That <laughs> would go around just eating people. And then there was a version of Rollerball, and there was a version of of you know Dirty Harry, and there's a version of professionals and stuff. They were all kind of they were kind of showing their influences very obviously. But 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 every, you know, guys would get run over, they would get shot to pieces, they would get eaten by sharks, they would get, you know, crushed by tanks and things. It was just brilliant. And as a kid, if you're like seven or eight years old, you're a boy in New Zealand, you're just thinking, this is the best comic ever. <laughs> it's so great. So action was a biggie. Um, and the other one I loved was Mighty Will the Marvel, which was, you know, again, just a, a, a British weekly comic that reprinted the very earliest Marvel stuff. So I got a lot of really early Jack Kirby and Steve Ditko stories from that. And I just, I just love those. I just ate them up. So, yeah. And then there was lots of, you know, there lots of other stuff. We seem to get everything. We've got every British weekly under the sun in New Zealand. We've got every Marvel comic as well. And not so much the DCs, but we definitely just seem to get every single Marvel comic. So I was, I was, yeah, I was a Marvel addict too, really. So the first story that you had in Doctor Who magazine that you mentioned, is that Memorial? That's, yeah, that's Memorial. So, yeah, I did that, yeah. So that one was written in New Zealand um, and uh, and just sent off with with a big prayer, yeah, basically. <laughs> and, yeah, I always remember getting it. I always remember getting the, 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 the package back and thinking, oh, he sent it back. Oh, okay. It's obviously it hasn't. It's not going to happen. <laughs> He's literally, John has literally sent the script back to me. I think, and I was like, okay. But then he basically said, no, this is great. I really like it. And John, uh, John Ridgway is going to draw it. So it was just ridiculous. I just remember just jumping around the house, just overjoyed. So, yeah. How old were you? Um, at the time? I about 25, I think, at the time. Yeah, so 25. That was the first time I got basically a professional sale in comics. I've tried a few times. I've tried sending in stories to various places and, you know, and, and artwork, but that was the first time I got a bite really from anyone. So, you know, 
So I'll love John Freeman forever, frankly. Who <laughs> <laughs> <He> doesn't? <laughs> Yeah, and it feels very much um, in keeping with the Seventh Doctor um, stories and it's kind of the anti-war uh, message. Yeah. Um, I thought it was a really, I remember it from when I was a kid and then and then coming back to it, uh, reading it for this, it's, um, uh, I think it's lovely how it starts off. It's, it's quite a sad story about sort of loss and endings and then it turns into something really hopeful and it's about kind of rebirth and new beginnings. It was... Uh, Probably reading it in the the week of the election, probably uh, kind of <laughs> the, the election results at least. Uh, uh, it was uh, one thing. One thing I realised, you know, when I done Memorial, was that you could tell you could tell different types of Doctor Who stories in in comics that you just couldn't do on TV because no one's in any danger in Memorial. You couldn't do a whole Doctor Who story on TV with a Doctor and Ace yeah. just stand around and talk to an old bloke next to a war memorial. <laughs> but you could do these tiny little vignettes, really, in the, in the comics. So, but you could also, if you wanted to, do big, expensive adventures with lots of explosions and you know cliffhangers and things as well. So you, you had the best of both worlds, really, with a comic strip. So how, how soon after that did you move to the UK? I think I distinctly remember it happened at Christmas and my brother who lived in London was actually had come back to visit it at Christmas time. And I remember asking him, could I just sleep on your floor for a while or whatever? <laughs> and try and try and get more work if I, if I was to come over next year or something and just, and, and he said, yeah, sure. And as it turned out, I, I didn't have to sleep on his floor because he had his, he had a spare room in his flat. So, yeah, I basically moved in <laughs> and then just kept trying to get more work. And because I was there, because I was in London and I could, I could you know, visit the Marvel offices whenever I wanted to, you know, or with, whenever they'd let me, um, you know, that proximity really helped. So, you know, I got to know John and I got to know Gary Russell, who had, who had by that point taken over as the editor of the mag. And, you know, that was brilliant. They were both fantastic and really encouraging. So I just started doing more and more stuff. And at one point I, I spent a, a month or two just just basically working as kind of an editorial gopher for them as well and helping out on the magazine. So they got to sort of see that, oh, yeah, you can, you can sort of do office work as well and stuff. So that helped. And eventually I got, yeah, boy, I couldn't, couldn't even tell you the year now. I think it was 1994? 94 that I got that I got a job as the assistant editor on Doctor Who magazine at the time so I was I was basically being employed full time at the Marvel UK offices in London so yeah and doing uh, the, the occasional story as well and I think I was pretty sure I was cleaning offices at the same time because there was not a lot of money coming out <laughs> so I was spending the evenings coming around <laughs> not the Marvel offices but I was cleaning other people's offices <laughs> as well just to try and augment the income a bit so yeah the next so final genesis thing so that's like say the opposite of memorial it's the the big epic uh, yeah and a real a real fanboy idea really I remember when that came to mind thinking oh that's a great idea yeah sort of proper what if story yeah that's great and then finding out after it had been accepted that there would there was basically going to be a new adventures book with the same premise (laughs) <laughs> what if the Silurians had lived so yeah so that was fun but but luckily they were very different takes on the, that premise my one they were all 
it was all quite peaceful in the, in the book, I remember. Was it Jim Mortimer, I think, wrote it? Blood Heat, wasn't it? The new adventure, I think, yeah. That, uh... yeah. It, his one, you know, the Solarians and the humans were at war. So, so yeah, that was, that was very lucky that we had gone in very different directions. Yeah, what I liked about that one as well, usually when you get the parallel universe stories in Doctor Who, the, the Doctor doesn't usually exist in the parallel universe. So I thought that was a really nice take on it that the third Doctor had lived on uh, in that one to, to see the peace brought about between the humans and Silurians and uh, and was still around. That was uh, that was a cool premise yeah. for it. And we uh, killed them off on page one. Yeah. Well. <laughs> <laughs> that was a great hook, though. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, not too many Doctor Who stories start with page one, the Doctor is killed. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then Uninvited Guest uh, was one that um, I revisited, and that one that really uh, had stuck in my mind from uh, from my childhood. That's such a great story. That is the seventh Doctor just oh, in control and uh, that kind of uh, laying plans, isn't it? It's, That's, uh, yeah, that whole, it's, it's a really attractive thing to do, I think. I, I always do enjoy writing a story where the Doctor is just really powerful and has kind of worked everything out and the villain has no idea who they're dealing with. <laughs> but the reader does. Yeah. <laughs> There's something really satisfying about having some really smug, horrible villain just brought to their knees completely like that by, by the doctor who doesn't lift a finger really. He's just, he's just got them, got them finished before the story's even begun really. So yeah, but that was, that was me. I'm pretty sure just nicking the mask of the red death. That's where it came from. Right. The idea of there's this big party going on and you know, there's all this disaster and death and desolation outside, but they don't care. And then this figure enters the room and, and basically goes, you know, you know, you're not getting away with this. You're not going to escape this. So, yeah. And again, it's very Seventh Doctor, that sort of unfinished business, uh, sort of season 25, yeah. 26 uh, idea that I really liked about that. Yeah. The one, th- the one thing you realise looking back, the one thing I've realised looking back is that there's just no humour in these stories at all. There's just no, there are no gags, there's nothing funny. It was a period, that 90s period, was just deathly serious. It was all about, you know, everyone who was writing those stories, the new adventures and, and the like, we were all in our 20s and we were all trying to do these terribly important stories. You know, as it goes along, they're always about death and morality and making the tough decisions and, and things. And there was the sense of, and you kind of look at the Sylvester McCoy TV stories and even when things got a bit dark, there were still pratfalls and gags and stuff. <laughs> And we kind of thought, oh, no, we've got to – a bunch of these super serious young people kind of going, oh, no, no, we can't have, we can't have gags. We can't have Sylvester being silly. He's got to be cold and calculating and clever all the time. And, you know, it was, it was really only Gareth Roberts, I think, who just went, no, no, we can do funny. We can, we can put funny stuff into these things as well. But, yeah, I look back at my stuff and just think, yeah, <laughs> I was just <laughs> trying to be terribly dramatic. <laughs> Well, that segues beautifully into Ground Zero. So this is the final Seventh Doctor kind of regular comic strip, um, and famously the or infamously the death of Ace. How yeah. how did that decision come about to, to kill the character off? 
Yeah, it wasn't it wasn't intended at the start. It was very much a real have to get rid of Ace. Really was was because we knew by the time we had, by the time I was plotting out that story, we understood that there'd be no mention of Ace in the Paul McGann TV movie. Because I think I'm pretty sure I started plotting that story before even the TV movie had been announced. I'm not sure, but but as the sort of weeks went by, we come to understand. Okay, Sylvester will be in the TV movie. But Sophie Aldrin won't. So we thought, okay, we've got to. We should write out Ace in some way. Um, and it's just like it just became this real hurdle, really. This, this terrible sense of of how do you get rid of Ace? How does Ace leave the Doctor in, in, the, in the context of this one story? And there was there was a lot of you know we kind of went back and forth over it. And I thought this is the final Sylvester McCoy story, really. You know, he gets shot and dies in, in the TV movie, but it's by no means a big final seventh doctor story. We thought this will be the big final seventh doctor story. It's got to have this sort of air of finality to it and this darkness to it. And I kept thinking, well, we can't kill Ace. We've got to sort of get rid of her in some other way. We kept talking about, about just sort of putting her in a coma or something and then, you know, she gets badly injured in the fight or whatever and he has to put her in a glass tube or something to before so he could find some way to heal her later on. And then, you know, we're probably thinking just Absalom Dak and maybe puts his girlfriend <laughs> in a glass tube for, uh, for the remainder of his adventures. And I just get thinking that's not going to work because the Doctor... Will then just devote all of his time to, to to finding a cure for Ace, and that's all Paul McGann will be doing, and that doesn't feel right, you know. If we're starting off this brand new exciting chapter in, in the comic strip, you know, for this new Doctor, to just have the previous Doctor's companion stuck in the TARDIS, because I mean, he can't forget about it because that would be incredibly <laughs> callous. So it just didn't seem right or fitting, and then we just, I just kept circling and thinking, boy, if she died. No one would ever forget the story, you know. It would be such a such a, a body blow, and it would really make this a, a really powerful story that that people would remember, you know. And I just, yeah, but but it wasn't it wasn't taken lightly. It, it definitely wasn't. I didn't start off thinking, oh, I'll write a death of Ace story. It very much sort of came towards the end of the plotting, really. Um, but yeah. So yeah, it happened. But yes, and I remember Sophie Aldred came in once, and, and and she seemed perfectly fine with it. So I thought, okay, <laughs> Sophie Aldred's fine with Ace time <laughs> in the comic strip. I don't really care what anyone else thinks. <laughs> That's fine. So yeah, what was the reaction like generally? Obviously, before the days of, of social media, uh, which would have, I guess, blown up. What was the yeah. uh, was the letters page things like that? Was there a big? There were there were a few angry letters. I think, yeah. I think there was. I think it wasn't so much how dare you kill Ace as how dare you deviate from the continuity of the books. I think was, was right. a big thing. I think that was kind of the big, the big issue with a lot of people. And we had already kind of gone. We're just not going to follow the new adventures continuity. You know, they kind of had a. We kind of had a go at it, but it never really worked. It never felt very satisfying. And, you know, that was another reason, you know, that Ace could die and it could be a big kind of break in that sense and say, no, we're the original, we're the comic strip, we'll, we're going to go our own way now. We're not going to keep it, trying to insert new adventures, companions into the strip or do anything like that. 
So yeah. So yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I think I think generally speaking, that Ground Zero is, is quite well regarded as a story. Mm-hmm. And if you just want to, you know, if you just want to ignore Ace dying at the end, then then <laughs> fine. But she doesn't come back to life. <laughs> the Doctor didn't didn't give her a, a magic potion a page later and, and fix her up again. I'm sorry, she's still dead. Yeah, he didn't do what the Doctor does in the TV movie and uh, just magically bring her back to life. (laughs) Afraid not. (laughs) Uh, So it also introduces the threshold. Uh, So I guess as you're talking about the Tenth Planet, it sort of uh, introduces a a recurring villain in a Doctor's final story. This introduces threshold will be um, an ongoing villain for the Eighth Doctor and uh, and starts a whole new era. When you when you get a new Doctor actor. do they have any say over their likeness? Do they kind of give any any feedback I, or? I don't recall because it was kind of by the time we were there, and you you realised that when the TV movie was was broadcast, we were still just doing Ground Zero. There wasn't this big thing of we've got to have Paul McGann in the comic strip, you know, the month that the that the TV movie gets broadcast. So by the time we actually got to Paul McGann it was clearly not going to be an ongoing thing and there wasn't, and I don't think Paul McGann was terribly interested really in <laughs> pursuing it anyway. It was just, it was just another job, for him, you know, he moved on by then. So no one, no one really, this is, a, it's a funny thing to say now, but people at the BBC didn't really care. You know, <laughs> at that point, Doctor Who was just this thing, this thing that they'd had another go at it and hadn't worked out. And now it was back to, Back to this niche thing, and as long as as long as you know, Arvel or Panini or whoever were were still paying them their monthly kind of you know license fee, then that was fine. We could kind of be left to do what we wanted. Um, so yeah. So is that any so, different? No, I don't remember any any likeness problems? Is that any different on the new series? Is there more control over likenesses? Oh, oh yeah, or yeah, and understandably so, because Doctor Who's big. You know, a big, big deal for the BBC now, and it's only right, really, that they should take an interest in 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 all of the different licensed, you know, versions that you know, Big Finish and the books and the comics and things. You know, it'd be crazy if they didn't, really. Mm-hmm. So yeah, yeah, they they certainly taken a you know a proper interest now in the stuff, and all of this stuff has to get approved. You know, art has to be approved, and plots and scripts have to be approved for this stuff. Do the individual yeah. actors, though, I've always sort of had an idea that. That the actors would maybe uh, yeah the, the actors have yeah the actors the actors do give approval for their likeness. So whenever right. a new artist comes in, they have to look at the new artist stuff and say, okay, yes, that's acceptable. So, so yeah, there is there is definitely that element to it. So uh, I do remember I do remember with uh, with uh, Christopher Eccleston um, arrived and uh, and we had to send artwork over. Of him and, and and Billy Piper, and uh, Mike Collins had done them. And Mike, you know, being being a, a very professional British comics artist who had done a lot of work in American comics, where things get idealised, you know, a, a lot. There is the sense of make people good looking. Had made had kind of drawn this very good looking version of of the Doctor. And apparently Christopher Eccleston saw it and just turned it down and said, I look like a bloody action man. (laughs) (laughs) So Mike had to go back and make his nose bigger and his ears more gawky and just make him, just 
gawky him up, you know, in this kind of in this kind of way. And then, and then Christopher X would put, yeah, no, that's me. That's fine. But, uh, and, like, and to be fair, when, when, when he came into the comic strips, I did look at him and think, that is Christopher Eccleston, all right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Mike, Mike absolutely nailed him. He was just brilliant. But yeah, that was that was quite funny because it's probably the first time ever an actor said, "Make me less handsome, please." <laughs> <laughs> so at the end of the um, McCoy era of the strip, and as Mark's already said, you introduced the threshold. How did they come about? Threshold again, like a lot of stuff, I think comes from James Bond because <laughs> I love James Bond so much, and uh, and quite often I think, okay, what if you just translated this James Bond thing into Doctor Who? How would it change? How would it be transformed? So I really liked Spectre and James Bond, and in particular the way they kind of introduced Spectre and Thunderball in the novel. The idea isn't so much that Spectre is some evil organisation out to rule the world or anything. They're just a mercenary outfit and you can just hire them to do anything, really. You you can hire them to knock over a bank, you can hire them to topple a country, you can hire them to do anything. And that, I thought, put that into Doctor Who, put that into a sort of interstellar level where you've just got this hinted organization that, that if you can contact them you could get them to do anything at all wouldn't be a really good creepy menace for the doctor it's something that hadn't really been done in 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 the the tv show before so that's kind of where threshold the threshold came from but i also remember at the time it was this weird thing where i was i was watching a lot of uh the bbc video releases and i watched you know, for the first time, and I watched The Rescue, and it has that strange bit at the end where these two people in white just show up, don't they? And they sort of attack Kaquillian or Bennett. Um, and, and then, but they're not named or anything, and they kind of smash up the place. And, and I think the next story I, I saw, maybe the following night, was the Space Museum. And I'm sitting there watching the watching that first episode and that's just the weirdest first episode you know <laughs> but there's this bit where these doors open and these two figures in white come out and i can remember distinctly going oh my god it's the same people from the rescue they're following him they're following the doctor and just this idea that that someone could monitor the doctor like that and that you could have these return, recurring people just show up again even though it's on a different planet in another time zone, but they're there as well. I just distinctly remember getting this real tingle down my spine because I just misunderstood and thought, it's the same people from the rescue. And that, I remember, was a real a real light bulb moment for me, thinking, yeah, what if Threshold, what if we could, you know, there'd be different people each time, but we'd find some visual way of linking them all together, which became Letratone Dots, and they could just be anywhere. And then they know the doctor and they can follow the doctor anywhere and just monitor him. I thought that sort of gives them a sense of power and a a mystery to them, which would hopefully, you know, make them feel quite, quite interesting. And it it gave way to um, some really good characters within the threshold. For example, Sister Chastity. Yeah, <laughs> there is it's a Julie Andrews and she reminded me of um, the nurse from Blackadder Goes Forth 
in that she's all sweetness and light in front in front of the patients and everything, but the minute everyone's back's turned and it's just her and the doctor, she's got a cigarette out and <laughs> that's cool. I didn't I didn't I did a vet sister Chastity, I should point out that's that's Alan Barnes's character, yeah. Alan and Marson. Alan <laughs> Garrison came up with Sister Chastity. Sister Chastity is such an Alan Barnes villainess, really. <laughs> She's perfect. He's awful. <laughs> so um, you've got a new doctor, the TV movie's been on. What kind of conversations were had? What kind of like deliberations were had in de- deciding the whole um, direction of the strip that you were involved in? Oh, now you've got me. It was, it was a long time ago. As I said, was I was in an earlier regeneration. But, uh, it, I just, it feels like a change of tone, like it's uh, it's a bit lighter to begin with. And, I, and yeah, it, it yeah I think so. I think so. I think, yeah, Alan came in and, and definitely put some humour into into the comic strip and, you know, and much needed humour it was, really. There was the sense of, okay, we're, we're leaving the whole master chess player you know, cosmic manipulator doctor behind, and he's going to be much more just kind of actiony and and kind of innocent and and just just yeah, he won't be this kind of cerebral uh, methodical figure anymore. He won't be working behind the scenes. He'll just be diving into an adventure and then seeing what happens, which I think was definitely the right way to go for him. And of course, Alan and Martin came up with Izzy, which was the perfect counterpoint really, for him, this young, really enthusiastic girl um, who also just wants to dive in and, and have fun and have adventures. So, yeah, I think I think it was just, just keep it light, keep it fun, keep it fast-moving, really, and, you know, and, and try to try to make it as varied as possible in terms of just the, the tones of the stories and the settings and the characters. Make it colourful. I know Gary Gillett who was editing the the mag at the time was very keen to to make the strip have its own identity and definitely to harken back to the earliest days of Doctor Who Weekly, where you'd have, you know, if I remember him saying, if we go to Gallifrey, it should be the Tides of Time Gallifrey we go to, not the TV version, that kind of thing. You know, let's let's draw upon the past and use that to sort of come up with our own ideas and our own our own continuity. And I think, you know, that was a very good point. And it's something that we've kind of stuck with ever since, really. Yeah, and that's exactly what happened, wasn't it? Because in the final chapter, it's the, it's the uh, Gallifrey of the strips of old, isn't yeah. it? But with this fucking great new building that's Ooh. central to the plot. And um, I must with say, in dome, terms of... The dome. We came up with the dome. <laughs> I love the fact that the dome came <laughs> <laughs> on TV. <laughs> <laughs> That was all Something that Dave Gibbons, I think, does. I'm pretty sure Dave Gibbons introduces the dome in the Tides of Time. And, uh, and yeah, we just start with the dome. And I love the idea that, that Russell Russell Davis is just reading the comics for all those times and goes, well, obviously Gallifrey's got a giant dome around the city, hasn't it? And puts it into the TV show. I love that the art imitates the art. And it's it's kind of like it just goes around in one big circle. I mean, how fantastic! Yeah. yeah. Um, and the the threshold arc um, comes to kind of a, a climax with Wormwood, which is one that you wrote. Um, and I have to say, like with the there's a kind of a bit of a spoiler alert here. So if nobody if nobody's read them, go go and get the 
the graphic novels and then come back and listen to the rest of this because at the end of the previous adventure there's fake regeneration so Wormwood begins with a doctor who looks like Nick Briggs yeah the Nick Briggs doctor arrives <laughs> to take yeah. over <laughs> yeah it's <laughs> such an audacious thing to do <laughs> It fooled me. It yeah, well, yeah, it fooled everyone. That was the fantastic thing. Everyone kind of, I assumed, thought, oh, well, maybe they've just lost the rights to Paul McGann. Maybe Paul McGann's withdrawn his, his likeness or something. They've got, to get they've got to get rid of him somehow. You know, we didn't say that, of course. It wasn't true. But, but uh, we just thought, oh, God, this would just throw everything up into the air. This would just mess with so many minds. It's not like a month later we we went, ha-ha, fooled you. It was four months later before <laughs> we revealed the truth. We had Nick Briggs. We had the Nick Briggs doctor running around with four issues. So, yeah, that's 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 one of the best surprises I think we've ever done in, the, in this trip. That was such a laugh. I, I, I was it having that, that kind of... Um, creative freedom in order to be able to do what you, you could do. I'm assuming that that wouldn't be able to be done now. Well, I wouldn't try now because no one would believe it. That's the thing. If Jodie Whittaker suddenly regenerated to someone else, you just shrug and go, but she's not, isn't she? She hasn't died. She hasn't regenerated. She's on at Christmas. You know, there's, there's just, there would be no point in doing it. The, the, the reason we could do it, of course, was that there was no TV show. It was just us and the new adventures, and that was it. It wasn't even Big Finish. You know, he, he wasn't doing Big Finish at the time. I'm not even sure if Big Finish had started doing Doctor Who at that point. But, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so we could get away with it at that point. We, there was there was total freedom. It was it was crazy. So was this when Nick yeah. Briggs was playing the Doctor in the, uh, what they called the audio adventure? What were the, what was the, yeah. the um, yeah. audio visual? Yeah, yeah so basically that, the proto big finishers, right. really, before before they kind of went, you know, the, they got the official license. They were, there was a lot of fan videos being done, uh, fan audios, or rather, being done. And yeah, Nick Platt always was playing the Doctor. Um, so yeah, and he had a look. You know, he had that suit, and he had the toothbrush in his in his pocket, and, and all. So I remember when we were talking about, okay, he's got. To, we've got to do this fake regeneration. What's he going to look like? And again, I think it was Gary Gillard who said, "Let's make him the Nick Briggs Doctor," because he had already popped up in the comic strip. Gary Russell and Mike Collins had already put him into a strip called Party Animals and kind of established him as this future doctor that Sylvester McCoy recognises. So there was already that key. He had already been established as a, as a doctor. So it immediately people, you know, bought it even even more uh, more quickly because of that. And did Nick Briggs know or was that a surprise to him as well? Oh, no, no. We, we asked Nick first. <laughs> we did ask Nick first and we got him to pose for, for photos as well for, so uh, Martin would have some photo reference of him. So there are some funny shots, I think, of Nick um, sort of stumbling around a car park or something, clutching his head. If you, if you look hard enough, you might be able to find him somewhere. <laughs> and it led to the great line, Dotty appointing a toothbrush at the enemy. Yeah, oh, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> it's just a cracking line. It cracks me up when I read that. Um, and so th this is at the end end of an arc. Were you tasked with bringing together all these strands of the threshold? I mean, was it was it 
planned a lot or uh, it's, yeah it's a long time ago now i'm sorry okay. <laughs> sorry, sorry to... I definitely, we definitely felt i definitely felt like i wanted to be in the whole threshold thing that i didn't want them to be constantly coming back i thought you know because we'd, we'd had a decent run of them that sort of showed up in three or four stories by that point you know and then of course in their first story they'd basically be responsible for ace's death so you know they were quite a heavy villain because of that so we figured they deserve to have a proper conclusion, proper sort of scorched earth kind of moment where they just get completely wiped out. Um, yeah. So yeah, yeah, I think that was always always intention. That was that was always my intention really was to to polish them off properly, and also explain what they were really because I didn't you know I wasn't one hundred percent clear on on what the origin was really when I established them. They were just. They were just this mysterious group, really. And I always remember real making that connection with the Letratone dots and, and Shade's perfectly round black head and going, oh, of course, yes, yes, and dancing. I think I wrote about this in the graphic novel. And I, I was, I, we were at a convention and I was in the hotel room and I went running downstairs and found everyone in the bar and, and explained to them and they all just stared at me. I was going, no, it's brilliant. No, really, it's a great idea. <laughs> <laughs> and everyone was like, yeah, sure, Scott, sure. Yeah, yeah, great, great. Just have a pint. <laughs> and then, and that, of course, like, involves bringing Shade shade into it as yeah. well. Yeah, yeah. It was, you know, it was brilliant. The shade, shade had already, yeah, Shade had popped up in the final chapter, hadn't it? Yeah. And there was yeah. So, yeah, you see, we'd already established that, and that was the nice thing. It wasn't like Shade was suddenly appearing, oh, he's the fake doctor. Shade had already been in that story. We'd already um, established it. But, yeah, I really like Shade. Um, but, uh, yeah. So when just that, okay, great character, really interesting visual, part of the, the strip's history. So, you know, let's, let's use him. I'd kill for a little figure of shade, quite frankly. Oh, that'd be great. Um, yeah. When you yeah. say, I, I, I like all these characters as little figures. <laughs> quite, <laughs> quite frankly. <laughs> Start a petition. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so when, when uh, just like finishing off on that, when McGann's doctor was suddenly revealed, that final frame, yeah, what a, a brilliant a, image. Really, it was an absolutely yeah. brilliant image. My God, that was so beautiful. Uh, yeah. Proper to actually look like you've seen a ghost. And, and I thought, I actually, I have. By then, four issues in, you're kind of going, okay, I can deal with the new Doctor. Okay, it'll be fine. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Proper twists, and that's that, that proper storytelling and wrong-footing your, your your readers and 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 the followers of, and just pulling the the rug out, and it's not what you think it is. It's mm. um, you know, pro- proper good dot two stories. Um, but between all these arts, there was kind of like changes of style and um, changes of pace. Like there were, was, it, was it deliberate to have kind of your major arcs and then a bit of a breather, like kind of an ebb and flow of storytelling yeah yeah definitely yeah, cause I, think, I think i think it's nothing but one huge con- big story arc um it can be very off-putting and you know you've always got to be aware that 
but you, hopefully new people are picking up this magazine regularly and they, they're faced with just this wall of incomprehensible continuity of the comic strip they're not going to read it you know it's as simple as that so yeah you do want some shorter stories in there too which are which are much more straightforward that they can follow easily um but yeah yeah so yeah that that was always that's always in mind yeah, so it's like it's kind of the the difference um, between well, I was going to say between other people and Adrian Salmon, but the difference of Adrian Salmon's distinctive artwork as kind of a punctuation point. I mean, because he's 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 got a really unique style of his oh, own. Oh yeah, yeah, and then yeah, yeah, and then straight after that, it's onto the fallen, um, which uh, again, spoiler alert, it was it was this kind of seen as a sequel to the TV movie. It's the one where Grace comes back. Yeah, and, yeah very and much. And the master. Yeah, very, very much. Um, that, that was the idea, really, to, 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 to introduce a new master, basically, a, a new version, because I kept thinking, we've got to do the master at some point, really. <laughs> and it just, you know, and I, I, again, you just love the idea of having the master all the way through the story, but then you only write at the final page go oh right okay you don't even know he's in the story which is something that you know they do on tv as well of course and have a lot of fun with it but yeah the yeah definitely definitely um that's a sequel to the tv movie i think it's pretty obvious um yeah yeah uh, it felt like um as a reader it's felt like it's almost a sense of closure to the tv movie because the, the end of the tv movie says goodbye to grace says come with me and she says no but on here, it's like they have it out in the car at the end, and yeah, and it's yeah. like just go, you know, have five bob, go down to the to the flicks while we, you know, kind of sort sort out our troubles. Yeah, um, it's, it's really funny really because it's the first relationship the Doctor ever has, essentially, isn't it? First kind of romantic relationship the Doctor has. Had a few but but you know, Paul McGann and Daphne Ashbrook, they they're a couple in that story. And then they don't they don't carry on, and I kind of like the idea. You know, you, you examine that story and you realise that the Doctor, even when he just does casual stuff, even when he says a casual comment, it can have a huge impact on people. I mean, and at one point, he's just kind of idly playing with something in her apartment, and he says, "Don't worry, Grace, you'll do great things." Dot dot dot, and leaves it at that. Now, she knows he's a time traveller. She knows he's seen the future. What would that do to you as a person if a time traveller said, you're going to do great things, and it just doesn't say anything else? So that just sets her off on this on this path. She literally, you know, you know, you know, talking about holding back death, which is this running thing in the, in the, in the TV movie. And you think, yeah, you'll do great things. I'm going to hold back death. And that sets her on this really bad situation, really, which ends up, oh, God, I've ended up creating this big globby monster. But, uh, yeah, yeah. And uh, I don't know. It just, it, just seemed, it just seemed right. It just seemed a good sort of source of conflict. And, you, you know, if you, you're trying to do this stuff, anytime you can find a reason for two characters in the story to shout at each other, Take it, you know, that's great. <laughs> Take it. When people can turn around and point the finger at the doctor and say, you got this wrong, okay? Shut up and listen to me. You got this wrong. I'm going to tell you why. That's gold. That's fantastic. That's what you want in a, in a story 
really. And the doctor actually has to show up and listen and go, yeah, you may have a point, actually. Um, that's, you know, that, those kind of moments are really important. Yeah, and and, and again, uh, the rug pull right at the end with the master reveal and the final image of the shrunken operative yeah. and he's contorted on, on, on the... Uh, on the banks of the Thames. Well, Martin, his name was Duncan. Martin always called that the shrunken Duncan page. <laughs> the shrunken Duncan. <laughs> I will never forget that. <laughs> and then immediately on from that, there's there's two consecutive stories, um, both setting up uh, setting up two characters who become uh, instrumental. To, uh, towards the end of the arc, one one was Croton the Cyberman, and the other one was Katsura Sato. Right. Yeah. Um, I, uh, the that that was a big another big rug pull for me was because I thought they were kind of like breather stories when I was reading them, but then there Croton comes on board the TARDIS, yeah. and Katsura Sato come uh, you know becomes instrumental at the end. Um, yeah. That was that was. How much is how much is stage management, and how much is kind of the organic um, the story growing organically by itself? It's it's very organic, really, because I didn't I didn't bring Croton back. That was Adrian Adrian Salmon. He wrote that story that one barter where Croton's Croton's fighting the Sontarans, and he I think he just started doing that. I can't really remember now, but I think he just kind of drew a few pages of it just as a as a, oh, this is what I'm kind of doing. And, and we all looked at it and thought, well, we've got to publish this. This is brilliant. And, you know, we've just had shade in the, in the comics. So it's just, you know, yeah, we've got to bring back Croton as well. How fantastic. Croton's never even met the Doctor, you know? So that's, you know, that's exciting. And immediately you think when Croton meets the Doctor for the first time, the Doctor's going to zap him, isn't it? <laughs> He's just going to look at him, see a Cyberman, and just zap him somehow. So there's your cliffhanger kind of thing. Um so, yeah, yeah, Adrian did something quite brilliant, I think, with Croton. He made Croton an athlete, which I just loved. You know, Croton is basically just like a Cyberman in, in those backup stories. But when Adrian got hold of him, he decided he, he could leap and jump and run and punch and sort of, you know, do anything, um, you know, physical. And I thought, that's brilliant because this is a visual we've never seen before, the idea of this really athletic Cyberman. Cyberman. So... Yeah, and he, and he kind of, he loosened him up too. That was the other thing. You know, Croton is quite formal, isn't he, in those, in those backups? Yeah. And, uh, and Adrian made him much more casual in his, in his dialogue. You know, he's much more human in, in the, that story. So I just thought, oh, God, this is brilliant. We've got to keep him, really. So, yeah, yeah, we immediately thought, okay, we've got to do a story. I'll do a story with Adrian where... Croton meets the Doctor and Izzy and ends up travelling with them so that we'll have a trio in the TARDIS, which we haven't tried before. Um, and, yeah, and then, of course, we'd also done the Japanese story where it introduced Sato. And, again, I thought, you kind of you kind of plant seeds. You kind of think, okay, that's a good character and we've established he's immortal now. The Doctor's done this thing to him. The idea of, you know, a samurai wants to kill himself and he can't do it now. He's immortal because of the Doctor. So he's got this reason to hate the Doctor, even though the Doctor's just basically saved his life. I thought that's a really good kind of conflict there. We'll bring him back at some point. And then it was, it's just a case of, 
you've got all these ingredients and you want to, you've got the master, you've got Proton, you've got Sato. How do we combine them all and do a big sort of season finale, really? So, yeah, yeah that was yeah. the main. The, um, the bit where the, uh, the, the buddy in the Japanese one and she's, and, and she's forcing Izzy to show her the future and, and Izzy's is trying not to show her basically the, the atomic bomb and she yeah. screams. I thought that was incredibly powerful. It's like, it pulls my punches. Um, yeah, yeah. And was, of course... That was, yeah, again, again, you've got this, this thing which they don't do a lot of the TV, but just the impact that a companion could have travelling through history. If something just slips out, if something is given away, which really shouldn't be, you know, that's a really powerful thing to do. And it can be just, it can be, you know, completely accidental as well. Um, but yeah, companions have their own kind of power in, in a historical story. And that, that's an interesting thing to, to sort of examine. Yeah. And uh, certainly Izzy, Izzy's in it for a very long time. Like she's, mm-hmm. she's a, uh, she's got a hell of an arc like over over all the arcs i mean her character arc and she gradually changes as well i feel because when you when you get to um aphidious and and beautiful freak and that was like and that really challenges her um her her character as well when uh with the with uh the body swap with destry yeah uh, yeah that it's um it's um, how it's kind of as time goes on, the um, a lot of the stories seem seem to be more Izzy driven. Was yeah. that was that kind of was that kind of the, the intention? Or yeah, I, I seem to recall thinking that when we got to the end of the, the threshold story, which you know had been such a long running story that uh, that we were kind of we were kind of starting all over again really at that point and that's the point where the strip changes to colour and there was the yeah. sense okay everything's great now isn't it you know the, with the threshold of finally it's finally behind them you know the doctor's put that to bed finally and you know it's just the doctor and Izzy having fun in this you know new colourful comic strip world and I, so immediately I thought how do I ruin this <laughs> what happened what can I do that will just make this go horribly wrong for them? <laughs> and I've always loved body swap stories. I've always I was thinking about this today, just just thinking how many great body swap stories. Are. You remember the episode of the Avengers where Steed and Emma Peel get yeah. end up the villains end up getting sneaking into their bodies and stuff. And it's a great Fantastic Four story, a really early Fantastic Four story where. Uh, Doctor Doom swaps bodies with Mister Fantastic, and I just love that one. It's just cracking. So yeah, and I thought, yeah, body swap. No, Doctor Who's never done a body swap story, so immediately, yeah, just started thinking along those lines about what kind of what kind of other person w- would do that. And I think I must have been thinking about Faith in Buffy the Vampire Slayer. He's the sort of mirror image of Buffy, you know, this this yeah. other. This sort of some of the similarities to Buffy, but is definitely going down the wrong path. And there was a body swap story there as well. So that I, I, you know, I don't remember distinctly, but I, that must have been that must have been an influence on this. But the idea of yeah, basically doing the body swap story, but then not resolving it at the end by actually showing Izzy's body get destroyed apparently, um, 
And then Izzy is absolutely stuck as this fish girl. I just thought, yeah, that's fun. <laughs> that's really quite easy. That's that's cracking. So yeah, but, yeah, yeah. Just reading that, I thought she was that was that was it. She was a fish. Yeah, yeah. Could have been. And again, of course, forever. it's because of the comic strip, no TV show. It's not something we could do to Yaz or Ryan or Graham. We can't turn, you know, we can't turn Graham into a fish man. <laughs> it's like no one's going to believe. <laughs> Everyone understands that Graham's going to be fine. <laughs> but Izzy, Izzy was ours. She belonged completely to us. So yeah, that just seemed to be absolutely the Izzy's fate. Now she was just going to be this this, this fish girl from then on. Uh, but I always, I always planned to bring back Destry. That was always part of the, the deal. I always knew how she survived. Fantastic creation. Cheers. Yeah. Um, yeah, and then, uh, and it, but it's it was beautifully handled because he got this big spectacular with um, Aphidius and the body swap and seemingly his old body is destroyed, and then. All of a sudden, the doctor has to deal with his companion, who, as you said, this has never happened before. Original body's been destroyed. How does he deal with it? So that's quite, I thought that was uh, set up as quite a challenge for the doctor. So you see Izzy crying in the darkened bedroom, and he has to take her to the TARDIS swimming pool Mm. to basically hold her head underwater until she breathes water. And I thought that was quite. Really, really, really intimate because by that point, their um, relationship had been going on for years, and that was quite a quite a nice uh, again with the water thing, uh, ebb and flow of a, of a story. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, anytime you can put the doctor into a situation where he just doesn't know what to do, that's gold. That's just fantastic because the doctor always seems to know what to do. You know, give him an alien invasion and he's just relaxed he's fine he's happy give him a 17 year old girl who suddenly hates her own body that's you know and 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 absolutely needs some comfort and some reassurance that's totally out of his wheelhouse he's got no idea what to do there and you know that's that, that's fantastic you know that's the kind of thing you want to do you want to give the doctor challenges that really that really test him um so yeah, and he doesn't do a good job. Let's face it, he's rubbish. <laughs> he manages to not. He manages to <laughs> manages to get her to a swimming pool so that she can start breathing. But that's about it. He's really got no idea how to help her in, in that sense. And then, luckily, I think they land in Mexico next, don't they? And she meets yeah, 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 Carlo. Yeah, and then they meet Frida Carlo, and yeah, and she one who says to Izzy, you know. This is this is how you deal with it. This is how I yeah. dealt with my injuries. Yeah, and that was yeah, that was big really, it, it was yeah. very much like okay, Izzy's going to need someone to talk to in the next story. That was that was what I was thinking of. That was that was the the, the beginning of the story, and I was just looking around trying to find a woman, a, an historical figure that would make a good um, friend to Izzy and Frida Kahlo. I knew Frida Kahlo's stuff. And I, I knew a decent amount of, and you know, I knew something about her past. And I thought, yeah, yeah, it should be good. So I just did a lot of research for her, and uh, and yeah, the story grew from there, really. But it was always going to be about Frida, really, Frida and Izzy. So yeah, yeah. It must be quite interesting putting historical figures into a strip, like real historical figures. Yeah, it's brilliant. I love doing it. I absolutely love doing it because. 
it immediately it takes a lot of the, the pressure off the descents if you've got real people in the in the strip because you've got to research them you've got to read a lot about them you've got to collect as much information as you can and every single bit of information you do get can spark a story idea you know that's that's really key because you've got to come up with a story that you can't take that person out of the story and replace them with someone else it's got to be somehow really idiosyncratic to to that particular person so yeah for for Frida Kahlo and Diego Rivera you know you, you immediately start thinking okay they're artists they're an artist couple what if the villain's an artist as well you know and and it starts becoming this thing about you know you realize that you know I, I remember I'd gone to see an exhibition of 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 these fantastic ornaments from uh from the day of the dead in a, in a museum in London and 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 that that had really sparked an idea and I sort of made a note. You know, this was years earlier, I think. And just thinking, God, yeah, Frida Kahlo, Diego Rivera, Mexico, and it's the Day of the Dead. It's that night. Everyone's wearing a skull. There's just images of skulls everywhere. Oh, my God, you know, that's that Mark will go crazy with that. And uh, so, yeah, <laughs> the stuff, you know, that sort of suggests skeleton villains as well and things like that. So you can, it just... It just kind of builds like that. It builds, hopefully, in a fairly organic and natural, natural way. Yeah, yeah. It was, uh, yeah, the art, the artist and her ass, the, the buddy mm. ass artist, was uh, really quite grotesque in that. I thought it was beautifully grotesque. Yeah, yeah. I, she was great. I was kind of sorry I killed her off. Really, she was kind of based on Christina Ricci. <laughs> or she was. I thought she was. I'm not really sure. I think that's who. That's who we would have cast. <laughs> we were doing the TV show. <laughs> the place is easy. You, you just confirmed years of head cannon there. Thank you. So much. <laughs> <laughs> uh, changing tack slightly, can you tell us about the Mobox? Oh, okay. Then we the Mobox show. Of course, the Mobox show up in the first colour story, don't they? Yeah. And the Mobox again were just. I just wanted a, a Kirby type of alien in there. Really, I think that was it was as simple as that. I remember that at the beginning they just look like animals, don't they? They're, they're running around on all fours, so you think of them just as these kind of creatures that are no no smarter than I don't know bulls or or, or horses or, or whatever. But then, as the story progresses, you realise, oh no, actually they, they when they're not when they're not being zapped by this mind nullifier thing, that they're actually walking around wearing clothing and they've got their own spaceships. I just I just like that idea. So you you want to you want to kind of design a character that that will make sense on all fours as well as standing upright. So they're very much based on on that kind of Kirby blocky shape, like the thing, the Fantastic Four, that that kind of thing. Um, so yeah, and I've always I've always just thought they were great. Really, I was very happy to. Be and of course, they've, quite they've recently come back, haven't they, for the Thirteenth yeah. Doctor? Yeah, yeah, it was. It was wonderful to see those back. And again, it's it's just a case of we've got our own aliens, recurring aliens, which is terrific. You know that that kind of thing. We don't have to just keep bringing back the Silurians or or the Autons or whatever. We've got our own aliens, our own you know, places and planets and characters that we can return to. Um, and I always maintain that that kind of makes us feel more like Doctor Who in a sense, than if we were just regurgitating all the TV characters and concepts. 
that that feels it feels like I think the strip would be lessened really if, if that's all we did. We just feel like a knockoff of of the TV show, but we've kind of built up quite a big sort of supporting cast of characters and places and aliens and things now that we can keep coming back to. And I think we can get away with that as long as as long as we play fair, as long as we explain stuff to new readers. I think I think we can we can carry on doing that. And it's it's just a lot of fun. So yeah, bring back the Mobox. That was fun because because I was playing on the idea that a lot of people just wouldn't remember them at all. So that cliffhanger when they zap one of them zaps Graham and Yaz and looks like he's killed them. It's basically a a, a rerun of the one that zaps zaps Destry and is his body. You know? <laughs> and it's the same idea. He's not really killing them. But I understood that, you know, the majority of people, even if they had read that story, probably hadn't read it for years and wouldn't remember that. You know, and so they would go, Oh my god, he's just killed them. What's going on? Hey, eh? what? Can't really have killed them. Uh but yeah, but uh and then maybe there was a small percentage of, of long term fans who would go, ah, I know what he's done there. And that's and then, then that, that, that was exactly it. my thought. I, I thought straight back <laughs> the thing that got in my head. Yeah. <laughs> and, and of course, like uh, talking about bringing characters back or offshoots of characters, there's uh, Baraka for Dog Bolter's daughter and yeah, yeah. recently. In, 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 yeah, in, I just, uh, again, and, just, again, it was just like giving, yeah, I, I really like Baraka. I just love the way John draws her. <laughs> just, somehow she's really funny and quite scary at the same time, which is just brilliant. Just the way he's, <laughs> the way he does her is just, she's so maniacal, but. But, quite, but fun, and I like a relationship with Sandola, her, her robot pal, and all. It's just, it's yeah, and it just, it just felt right to give Jody, you know, Jody's doctor, a proper female opponent right from the start, really, and uh, and say, so, you know, Don Bolter, he's just this old man. He's in prison now. The real problem now is his daughter. She's taken over. So uh, yeah. Yeah, it's 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 that kind of like that opposite thing, isn't it? So he's he's got Vestry, Proton, and Sato, Doctor and Master, Faye and Shade, and you know it kind of works many, many, many times over, and it's and and it really, really works in the strips. It seems. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't really think of it's. Yeah, I guess there is a sort of, I guess there is a kind of counterpoint there, really, isn't it, between the Doctor and and Baraka. I think Baraka doesn't see it at all, though. I, in fact, I, did, I don't think either of them would see that. Neither of them would, would ever look at the other one and say, "There's, there's a, some, some kind of, some kind of connection there." But, uh, but yeah, Baraka just doesn't believe in the Doctor. She doesn't really believe, I think, in altruism. I think that's the key thing. Whereas the Doctor's very altruistic figure. Baraka just looks at that and just goes, "No, it's just not true, is it? There's, there's, there's another angle." going on this is ridiculous you can't possibly be just risking your life for nothing <laughs> you want something out of this uh, so yeah yeah they are they're, they're pretty much exact opposites really I think Barack is all about gaining power and she's all about material things and the doctor's just not interested in that at all uh, yeah yeah 
But, but I love the fact that Brock is not to challenge the Doctor again. You know, she can point the finger at the Doctor and say, you think you're so brilliant, but look at the mess you made of this situation here. And the Doctor can't really argue with, by the end of that story, she can't really argue with Brock. She has kind of made, you know, she has sort of inadvertently been the cause of, of some terrible things. So, uh, yeah. What would they call that now? Chaotic good or good chaotic? Something like that. I don't know. This there's, is... there's an internet meme about chaotic good, I think. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you very much, Scott. It's, uh, that was absolutely brilliant. Thank you very much oh, for your time. That was, that was a lot of fun. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. I've been, I've, I've been meaning to ask all those questions for donkeys. Yet. <laughs> oh, brilliant. <laughs> I hope I made some kind of sense. <laughs> you certainly did. You certainly did. Thank you very much. Uh, oh, really appreciate it. Thank you. We should say that Mistress of Chaos is out now um, from uh, from all good retailers, and the uh, Daleks collection of the TV Twenty One comic strips uh, is out oh. this week as well. Available from Panini and W H Smith, uh, which I can't wait to get that. I've pre-ordered my copy. It looks absolutely beautiful. Yeah, it does. It's a gorgeous book. It really is so nice. But uh, and I can say that I had nothing to do with it. I'm just a fan. <laughs> I just, I just sit back and flick through it and go, "Boy, this looks pretty." But that's uh, yeah. it. Well, thank you very much, guys, and and thank you very much for listening at home. Goodbye. Yeah. Cheers. Bye bye. <laughs>